All right, good morning. Man, what a great, uh, great group this morning. Welcome to Seacoast. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John 21 this morning. John chapter 21. We've got a couple weeks left in our renovation series, and uh, today is all about John 21. Uh, just a little heads up. Some of you have been asking me, Dale, are we going to say anything or do some teaching in relation to this week's uh, kind of monumental uh, decision by our Supreme Court? And, you know, we've taught on this before, and uh, two things. Um, uh, yes, we will. Uh, we'll be speaking about how we as a church need to, to lead in our culture with grace and truth. Uh, how, do, how do you love on a culture in which we often find ourselves on, on a different side of things than the direction of the culture? But God says, this is where you live. So how do you love our culture in this type of environment? We're going to address that actually next week to help just refresh us and remind us. If you want to go a little deeper on this issue... In uh, March 2013, if you go to our website, go to sermons, and look at past sermon series, toward the bottom, uh, there is a series called The Exchange. And it was five weeks of teaching on this very topic, long version. Five weeks on how to be a Christian in a culture which is more post-Christian in its thinking. So if you want to dig deep, refresh yourself on that, uh, go to the five-week series from 2013, and you'll find a lot of teaching on uh, not just homosexuality, but you'll, you'll find teaching on how to be the church and how to address our lifestyles in the midst of the culture as well. So just a reminder that some resources are available to you, and we'll be putting together some more for you in the near future. But today, man, John chapter 21. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for your wisdom and your word thank you that you bring it alive to us thank you that you by your spirit inspired john to write this great gospel that we might believe and understand how to how to walk and uh, and live in your grace father uh we've been through a lot of um, a lot of stories from the life of peter we've seen his ups and his downs uh, today father uh, we're going to kind of see the rebound and we pray that you would uh, give us wisdom. I pray that your word would be used by your spirit to, uh, to continue your process of renovating each of us, changing each of us to be the people you want us to be. So man, that is my prayer this morning. I ask you to do that by your strength in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This has been a series on Jesus encountering his disciples around this theme of renovation. It's been a series where we pick passages in which we see the person of Jesus and, and especially his touch of grace changing people. We've seen Peter go from a guy that said some incredibly awesome things in which Peter was called out by Jesus and Jesus said, Peter, you need to know you are so right that there's no way you got this from men. This was given to you by God. Thank you for nailing it. And then we've seen Peter turn around in just moments and say something so dumb that Jesus would say, you know, this is straight from the pit of hell. This is from Satan speaking through you, Peter, so would you be quiet? So we've seen Peter have highs and lows. Last week, Ryan did a great job of teaching us uh, lessons learned from the lowest point of Peter's life, where Peter literally said one day, Jesus, I don't care what everybody else in the world does, but here's my deal. I promise you, Everyone else deserts you, I'll die for you. Strong statement, right? And we're going, yeah, way go Peter. And then we see him just moments later 
threatened by a little girl in a courtyard, deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. We hear the cock crow. We know that the last conversation that Jesus had with Peter was a conversation with no words. Scripture says that as the cock crowed after his third denial, as he literally cursed uh, and, and swore to kind of prove that there's no way he's a follower of Jesus, that Jesus' eyes crossing the courtyard under arrest met the eyes of Peter. And we're not real sure, as Ryan said last week, we're not real sure exactly what that look was like. I'm sure it was a look that um, was meant to communicate grace to Peter, but also to cause Peter to stop and think, oh my gosh, what have I done? That's the last conversation. Not a word, just a look that Peter had with Jesus. Scripture tells us that after that, that Peter wept bitterly. That's about all we know. We know that he locked himself away to hide out of fear. We know that he wept bitterly. We know that he was confused. We know that he was frustrated. We know that he was probably thinking, so what happened to this Messianic king that was coming? And what happened to the uh, Hail Jesus, uh, let him reign kind of party that was thrown just the previous Sunday? And now Peter is in hiding, fearful, probably feeling, you know something, my life as a disciple, at least as a leader, is over. We fast forward to John chapter 20, and the backdrop of today's story is this. The backdrop of today's story is the resurrection. Because now Jesus comes out of the tomb in chapter 20 of John. He comes out of the tomb, he begins to appear to people. We know, by the way, even though John doesn't record the episode, that later on Scripture will tell us that Jesus rose from the dead, and once he was out of the tomb, the very first person Jesus sought out and met with one-on-one was who? It was Peter. It says he met first with Cephas, which was another name for Peter. He met first with Peter and then with the disciples as a whole. So we know that Jesus sought Peter out. We have no record of that conversation. But you can imagine what it was about. Jesus meets with Peter. And so kind of as we go now into the rest of the story, post-resurrection... Jesus is alive. He's beginning to encounter His disciples. We know He meets with them at one point. And when He meets with them in John chapter 20, there's a couple episodes. He meets with them as a group. He shows up as a group for the first time. They're all there except Thomas. Jesus presents Himself to them. Jesus shows Himself alive to them. and, and, And they believe. And Peter's there. But you know the interesting thing is, Peter says nothing. Now, when do you know of any time in Scripture where Jesus encounters his disciples and Peter has nothing to say? See, I think Peter is still on the backside of his failure. Peter is still down. Peter is still sensing, you know, I'm figure, I figure, you know, at this point, I should just keep my mouth shut. You know, because I'm the one that came out and said, I'll never leave you. But he did. He denied Christ three times. So here's my question of the morning for all of us. My question for all of us is this. If you can imagine what is the sin that you would think right now, I would never do that. I want you to fill in the blank. The word that. What would it be? Don't say it out loud. Just think it. Now imagine yourself promising Jesus you'll never do that. Now imagine yourself doing it not once, not twice, but three times, and the third time Jesus walks through the room. 
What would you think is your future as part of the leadership of God's kingdom? That's exactly how Peter felt. So today, we're going to see not the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to see the resurrection of Peter. We're going to see how Jesus pulls this off. Not exactly his resurrection to life, but his restoration. We're going to see the restoration of of, of, of Peter by Jesus, and it's an amazing story. Okay, here we go. John chapter 21. Join with me and think of your own restoration if you had done something you thought you would never, never have done. Pick it up. Here we go. Our story, Peter's restoration, John 21. It says, Now after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. So Jesus again appears to the group. We know that they've left Jerusalem. They've gone up to Galilee, probably to begin to again make a living or at least to connect with their families and, and to await for Jesus. And, and it says he showed himself to them in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, named Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, two of them, and the two others of his disciples were together. So if you do the math real quick, there's seven out of the 11 now disciples, minus Judas, right? So seven of the 11 are here, and they're with Peter. And then Peter says this. Peter says, verse 3, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, oh, well, okay, we'll come also. We'll also come with you. And they went out and they got into a boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now catch this again. These are professional fishermen. So the first miracle that we're seeing happen in this story is this. They caught what? Nothing. Professional fishermen never go out on the Sea of Galilee and catch absolutely nothing, except one other time, and all of a sudden, remember that? One other time that happened, and it was the very first encounter that Peter had with Jesus. And sure enough, Jesus has set this thing up. So the fact of the matter is, where is Jesus at this point? Well, I I think he is somewhere in the vicinity because he is supernaturally steering the fish away from their nets. I mean, you've got to imagine, Jesus is probably having fun with this game, right? You know, they get ready to throw their nets, and they're here, 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 and Jesus says, okay, let me see, well, I know where you're going to throw it. And all the fish just go, whoop, just outside of the net. You know, the fish are laughing if fish can laugh. I'm not sure what's going on. But Jesus miraculously keeps their catch to zero. And then it says right before dawn, right as the sun is beginning to probably not even come over the horizon, but the sky begins to lighten up, it says, and when day was now breaking, verse 4, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. It's not light enough yet. So Jesus says to them, Children, do you have any fish? You don't have any fish, do you? Now you gotta, you got to hear the humor in this thing. Jesus is taunting them. He's teasing them. And in fact, he's probably ticking them off. Hey kids, have you caught anything tonight? And he knows they have fished all night and come up with how much? Nothing. And they answered, no. Long answer. And Jesus says, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll get a catch. So they cast the net 
And they were not even able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. In fact, there's so, so many later, they actually count these fish. 153 whoppers in one net, okay? So they go from catching nothing all night long to listening to someone on shore who says, hey, try the other side, you know? And they try the other side, and all of a sudden, they, they can't even pull the net in. It is so loaded with whopper fish. And, and, and all of a sudden, John remembers, he hears the voice, and it says the apostle John that was with them, John says... To Peter, he says, it's the Lord. And Peter, he get, bingo, of course, this happened before, right? Remember the day when Jesus said, Peter, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And all of a sudden, he, they recognize it. It, it. He becomes clueless. It says that, that Peter, who had stripped down for fishing all night, meaning he's basically kind of fishing in his shorts, okay? So Peter in his boxers is fishing. So, you know, in his, you know, Jerusalem boxers, okay? Okay, so it's a little different. But, but the reality is he puts on his outer garment out of respect for the fact he's about ready to be in the presence of God. Puts on his outer garment. Normally you don't do that if you're going to swim. Okay? Dives into the boat. They were about 100 yards offshore. Begins to swim for the shore. While the other guy is standing by. Peter, hey man, it's your business. It's your fish. I'm not leaving this net behind. You know, so they're bringing the net in. Jesus swims to the shore. And the party begins. It says the other disciples came in, in their little boat. But when they were not far off from the land. Verse 8. About 100 yards away. Dragging the net full of fish. Verse 9. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, already burning, and fish already placed on it and bread. Jesus needed none of their fish. You notice that? So Jesus has already built the fire. Jesus has been on the shore. He has built the fire. He's burned it down to charcoal so it really cooks nice. You don't want to cook your fish over big flames. It needs to be charcoal. He's made the charcoal from the flames. He's built the fire. He's been working on this thing for a while. Of course, he's God too. He could just say charcoal, boop, and there it is. You know, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure how he did it. But Jesus has the charcoal fire burning and he has fish and bread ready to eat. And he has breakfast. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. So he adds some of their fish to what he's already got. And Simon Peter went up and he drew the net to the land. So now Simon goes down, helps bring the net into the land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. There's like the third miracle in this catch. First he had to keep the fish away. Then he loaded up the net so heavy that it should have busted the net. And then the net miraculously doesn't break because it couldn't hold this level of fish so you know jesus is just putting his miraculous touch on this whole event then jesus said to them verse 12 and, and i love this because it moves from what i call the miracle catch in your outline there's an outline provided if you want to take some notes it will help you this morning so you may want to pull it out and at least look at it he goes from the miracle catch to the breakfast time with jesus in 9 through 14 and I love this section. It often gets skipped in light of what's coming. It says, so when they got out of the boat with the fire, it says in verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Man, at this point, they knew who he was. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and the fish likewise. Now, this was now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. There was the initial meeting without Thomas, remember that? And then Jesus appeared eight days later. Again, this time Thomas was there and he 
Thomas said, I'm not sure I believe. And he said, touch me. Remember that? That was when doubting Thomas became a believer again. So this was the third group gathering. In addition to meeting one-on-one with Peter right after the resurrection. So they have breakfast. We'll come back to the importance of that. So when they had finished breakfast, so now they've had a nice breakfast. They've eaten, they've talked, they've had conversation. Jesus probably asked each of them, so tell me what's been going on. Tell me how you're doing. Tell me about your families. How are they doing in the midst of the persecution that's going on after my crucifixion? I know you guys have been scared to death. I know you've been wondering where I've been the last few days. But tell me about how you're doing. And all the while, he's serving them breakfast. Now, can you catch the irony of that? This is the risen Son of God ready to launch the kingdom movement of the church for all time. And before he does any business with his guys, he serves them breakfast. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but just don't overlook that approach that Jesus took. Then that section which I call Jesus gets personal in verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, um, do you love me more than these? Now, what we know is this. Jesus has pulled Simon aside. Because later in the story, we're going to learn that they're actually, it's just the two of them. So he doesn't just in front of the group say this. Uh, He goes for a walk. Maybe the other guys were drying the nets, processing the fish. But he says, hey, Peter, let's go for a walk. And he moves himself away from the other disciples. Later on, we learn that John, by the way, being curious, starts following them. That'll come out later in the story. So just picture Jesus and Peter one-on-one alone for a walk. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, there's been a lot of speculation. What are these? For a lot of years, um, I read commentaries that would say that these maybe referred to his friends. Do you love me more than these? Meaning the other six disciples. I actually kind of tilt toward a different approach, and that is I think Jesus is walking past 153 paychecks. 153 big fish. Peter's a pro. He's a fisherman. Peter had just said, you know, guys, I've waited long enough. I'm going fishing, meaning I'm going, I'm going, I'm going back to work. I think Peter was going back to work, and I think Jesus was calling Peter, in his case, out of the workplace and into this full-time mission that he would encounter as a follower of Jesus. That doesn't mean every one of us should leave the workplace. Okay, That's not the point of this sermon. God wants you taking Christ into the workplace for most of you. But in this case, I think he's saying to Peter, Peter, this is the biggest catch you've ever had. Let me ask you something. This thing represents a lot of money. It represents security. It represents you being the big guy at the dock. It represents you having your family business back. Peter, do you love me more than these? Could have been the friends, could have been the fish. The point is, do you love me more than anything else? Now there's a fascinating little conversation goes on, and it gets confusing, so I chose to actually throw it up on the PowerPoint so you can track it. Here it is in short. Jesus asked three questions, but two of them are the same and one's different. First he says, do you love me? He uses the Greek word agape, which which is often used 
for uh, the love of God. It's like, do you love me like I love you? Do you love me unconditionally? Do you love me with that type of unconditional love? And Peter answers, Lord, here it is. You know that I phileo you. You know that I love you. He uses a different word. In English, it's all the same. But actually, Peter says, Lord, and he changes it to a word which means a brotherly love. It's a deep love. It's an important love. Nothing, nothing shameful about having phileo love, but it's not quite agape love. It's not that unconditional love that says, I love you in spite of whatever you do. I mean, I love you unconditionally. It's I love you like a brother. So Jesus asks the second time, Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Okay, agapao, do you, do you agape? Do you have this agape love for me? And Peter again says, Lord, you know, yes, Lord, you know that I follow you. So now you hear this dialogue. So Jesus comes back a third time and says, okay, Peter, do you follow me? And Jesus accommodates, I think, Peter by kind of lowering the language to the language that Peter at that point in his life can offer. I think that's what's going on. Nothing shameful about loving God with a phileo love, but agape love is better. But here's what I think is going on. Peter is, is, Peter is still living with the guilt of his failure. And I think Peter, after promising more than he could deliver and being embarrassed in front of everyone by it and being shamed the rest of his life, I'm going to be the guy in the story from here on out in all the Gospels that denied Jesus. I think Peter at this point just can't bring himself to promise more than he knows he can deliver. So this dialogue is going on, but I love that Jesus said, okay, Peter, do do you love me like a brother? Do you follow me? And then uh, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know exactly how much I love you. You know that I'm struggling to love you like I really should love you, but you know know I still love you, and, and I'm still working through it. I think that's what's going on. Now, some commentators think that the word change is not that significant. Uh, if this dialogue was in Aramaic, which it may have been, probably was, in Aramaic, they, they only have the one word. They don't have this distinction. So we don't know. But all I know is the inspired word of God changes the language because I think he's, God is revealing to us the struggle that's going on in Peter's heart. Because, again, he is such a failure in his own eyes that he just can't believe that God could still love him, that God could still use him, that he's even still on this team. In fact, he's, saying, he's probably thinking, you know, guys, good luck with building the kingdom of God. I know Jesus rose from the dead. I'm, my faith is still in him, but I might as well go back to fishing because I think I'm probably off the team. You don't know. But then Jesus, in all three cases, when Peter says, you know I love you, Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Second time he says, then tend my lambs. Third time he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you follow me? And Peter says, you know that I love you. And then he says, then feed my sheep. Take care of them. In other words, I want you to to be a a leader and, and a shepherd and to care for people and grow my church. And he calls Peter, he restores Peter, not just to forgiveness, but to ministry. Then Jesus gets even a little more personal. Part of the passage we'll have less time to deal with this morning, but he gets a little more personal and he, and he goes right out of this the, in, in verse 18. Look at it. When he says, then Peter says, then Jesus says, tend my lambs. 
And then right out of that, Jesus says, Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to gird yourself and walk around wherever you wish. In other words, you, you'd tie that belt around your waist and you were free to play and do what you wanted to do. And then he says, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else is going to tie you up. They're going to gird you and bring you to a place you do not wish to go. And the imagery we learn later is explained as he was describing how Peter would die. He was painting a picture of Peter most likely dying on a cross, bound up. And so he's saying, Peter, I know you say, I'm asking you to feed my sheep, but I'm also asking you to be willing to suffer because I, I'm just, I want to be up front with you. This is not going to end pretty for you in life. So then they're still walking along and John's kind of getting closer and then Peter does something interesting. He says to Jesus, I'll just tell you the rest of the story. He looks over his shoulder and he sees the Apostle John kind of walking, getting close. He says, what, what about him? Is he going to die like this too? And Jesus says, Peter, it's none of your business what I do with John. Whether he dies, whether he lives forever, till I return, doesn't matter. You follow me. You worry about yourself. Stay focused on following me, and I'll deal with John. You follow me. So what do we learn from this story? Let me break it down. I think there's four big things that I learn about how you and I should respond to, uh, to this incredible restoration of Peter. Number one, here they are. Number one is Jesus surprises us. When you talk about the grace of God in action through Jesus, grace always surprises us. It seeks out the fallen to forgive. I've already hit that, but I just didn't want to jump over it. I think the beginning of this story is the fact that there even is a story. Because if I wrote this story, or if you wrote this story, it'd probably go something like this. The, the title of this section would be, And Then There Was Ten. Right? Because Judas eliminated himself. He's been hung. And there's 11 of them, and Jesus shows up and he says, Hey, guys, come on in for breakfast. <laughs> Peter, go fishing. You know, be a good Christian, a good follower of Jesus, but enjoy the fishing business because you, you obviously proven that you're not faithful. I mean, you bailed big time, man. So, you know, it's no, no, no harm. You'll get into heaven, and I still love you, Peter, but I need guys I can count on. And I, so then, then there was 10. And the story goes on. So the biggest surprise is this. Do you understand how much grace God gives to you and me every day of our lives that we would still have the privilege of doing ministry at any level, of serving Christ at any level? Because God gives all of us grace. Peter's not the only one that's denied Christ. Peter's not the only one that got afraid. We're all in this game with Peter. Amen? Yeah. So don't be feeling real prideful. But grace always seeks out the fallen to forgive. Number two, grace in Jesus humbles us, reminding us to put our trust in Him, not ourselves. Because it'd be very simple for Jesus to be calling Peter back into ministry, man. I want you to feed my sheep, tend my lambs, be the man. Let's grow the church. You know, and, and, and by the way, I believe in you. And, and Peter would say, you know, Jesus believes in us and let's go do it. But before he does that, he does the fishing trick one more time. So that it reminds the disciples of how inadequate they are if they try to do it on their own and how totally adequate for the job 
Jesus Christ is. So knowing that the Spirit of God lives in us as Christians, this is a reminder, keep our trust in Christ, not ourselves as a church. It's a great reminder. It should humble us. Number three, gets more intimate. Then thirdly, grace in Jesus calls us into friendship as Jesus meets their everyday needs and ours. I love this breakfast scene with Jesus. It gets totally ignored when most people do sermons on this passage because the fun part of the passage is to jump really quick to, if you love me, feed my sheep, and we're going to get there. But don't overlook the approach of Jesus, the approach of grace. And it's a good model for me as a leader. Man, it just kicked me in the somewhere this past week. You know, it humbles all of us to realize here's Jesus, the ultimate resurrected King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and He's just humbly serving His team. And it reminded me that when we are in ministry, when you lead a team, when you lead a life group, when you do any ministry, kids ministry, youth ministry, if you are a leader in your home as a husband, for example, it tells me you better serve your team. Make breakfast for her. Now, I was working on this sermon this morning. I was laying in bed and thinking about this. And I said, hey, Beck, can you bring me a cup of coffee? <laughs> oh, man, that was a bad moment. But, you know, but she served me my coffee. But it really calls us that part of leadership, part of ministry is serving those that we lead at every level of life. Jesus calls us to friendship. I think he wants to remind them, you know, guys, I know that when you're hungry, you're going to do ministry better if you eat first. And I'm going to take care of your everyday needs. You're going to need food and shelter, and, and you're going to need to make a living. And so I'm not calling you to, 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 to not have a meal. I, I want to I show you that I love you at this intimate level as your friend. There's a great verse that this reminds me of. John 15, 15, Jesus said, No longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friends. So it's highlighting that friendship with God that Jesus gives us before he comes to the highlight of the passage. And the highlight of the passage, without a doubt, is then he challenges us to love him. He challenges us to love. If we love him, then love both Christ and his cause. And when I look at that, there's really one big question that Jesus just keeps repeating to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Let's go do ministry. Let's care for the flock. Let's grow the church. Let's reach the world. You know, Jesus just says it three times. Do you love me? He says it three times probably because he knew that Peter had a triple level of guilt because of the three denials. And he gives him a chance three times to affirm his love. And each time he says, feed my sheep. Now, what do we learn from this? Here's my final section. Number one, love serves. If you love Jesus, you serve. Not just Jesus, but his sheep. What hit me as I looked at this passage was this. It's easier for me to serve Jesus than to serve you. And you know why? You don't want me to tell you. You know why. It's easier for you to serve Jesus than to serve Dale. You know why? Because Jesus isn't. Dale isn't Jesus. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. You know, and sometimes the, the messiness of doing ministry with people 
cause us to say, you know something, I'm just going to love Jesus alone and I'm disconnecting from his church because I don't like the church. I just love Jesus, but I'm, I'm kind of done with church. And that's happening all around America. And Jesus Christ wants to meet one-on-one with each of us and he wants to say this, do you love me? Then you need to love my church. Not because they're lovely, but because they're so unlovely. And they need help. Did you get that? Wow. He calls us to love his church. Does that mean all of us are like Peter? We're going to die a martyr's death and we're going to be a great leader and write a couple books of the Bible that get our names on him? You know, um, no. But if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, write the reference down, Ephesians 4, 16, you see that this principle is applied to all of us because he says that the church is healthy and grows as each one, every part, does his own unique ministry. So all of us are called to ministry, maybe not Peter's kind of ministry. We don't need hundreds of the Apostle Peters. We need you asking one question. Do you love Jesus? And if so, will you say, I'm in? Show me where you can use my gifts, my passion, my talents, and I'm in. I'm not in because I love the church. I'm in because I love Jesus. And that's enough motivation. That's got to be the ultimate motivation. You will burn out in ministry if you focus on the people you care for and take care of. I have come to that edge several times in my life. At times things get frustrating and I think, you know something, why am I doing this? And the thing that keeps me in ministry is, is I won't say there's not joy in ministry because there is. But if I relied only on the joy of ministry, I would quit. Because sometimes it's not easy. So God's calling you to get in the game with him. Love serves. Not just Jesus, but the sheep. So don't tell me you love Jesus, but you don't want to serve. Because, and this is going to be tough today. Can you hear this? Out of love. Jesus says, do you love me? Then get in the game. Serve. Number two, be willing to suffer. I mentioned that. You've got to be willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. For Peter, it was giving up his life. For most of us, we're not going to be asked to sacrifice that much. Maybe we're on the wrong side of politics these days in America. Who cares? The reality is we're still called to love and do ministry, whether it's easy or not, whether we're popular or not. Whether, you know, whether the culture agrees with us or not, it's all irrelevant. Did the Roman culture agree with Jesus, yes or no? No. And then it says, therefore, follow me. Love follows. If you love me, trust and obey me, Jesus says. So in this one passage, love serves, love's willing to suffer, and love just says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you lead me. So the one question of the day, and we want to end the service a little differently because I'm going to extend the sermon out for the next five minutes with a little exercise. The question is, do you love me? I want to ask the worship band to come on up at this point because they're going to give us a little backdrop to just sit and worship and not sing, but just to ask this question. 
Some of you may be visiting today, maybe you're not sure what you feel about Jesus yet. And I understand that. And we'd love to meet and have coffee and talk with you about why we do love Jesus Christ. He died for us. He's our Savior. He's the, he's the man. Um, but for most of us here this morning, I want to speak to you right now. That if your answer to this is yes, then Jesus says, are you in? As a church, we have a vision to really make a difference in this city. We have a vision to go all the way to Africa and train not hundreds, but thousands of pastors and their wives and women in leadership. But to do that, you have to step up. You've got to get involved. There's an old saying that says in most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I think we're a little better than that here, actually. But I don't really care what the percentage is. In fact, I don't really care whether we even need your ministry or your work. Because in this passage, it hits me that the issue isn't your church needs you. Does your church need you? Then feed my sheep. No, the question is, do you love me? If you love me, you've, you've got to say, Lord, show me where I fit in helping feed the sheep, care for the sheep, take care of kids, take care of our youth, take care of our worship ministry, take care of other ministries. So as the band begins to come and play, I just felt convicted that I could not deliver this message to you without giving you an insert. And, and the cool thing is, we're not desperately recruiting for anything. Do we need help? Sure. But it hit me this week that we don't need you to do ministry. We need for you to love Jesus so much that you say, I want in the game. I don't want to just be a spectator, a fan of Jesus, clapping for the church, watching it do its thing. I want to be down and dirty and messy on the field, playing the game, helping advance the cause of Jesus Christ. And, oh my gosh, if I'm not doing that, you should be beating our door down and saying, Dale, I don't care if you need help or not. Jesus just said, feed my sheep, and I'm not feeding the sheep. I'm not really involved. Uh, 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 find a place for me because I want to be obedient to Jesus and mostly I just love him. See the difference? See, so the challenge this morning is hard because the challenge is for 100% of us who answer this yes. If you answer this question yes, you've got to find your place in helping feed the sheep, care for the sheep, love people, toward maturity in Christ. On the front of this, um, there's some big questions on one side. And if you want to, you can just stay on this side. Take out this little insert. You should have one of these. And um, I should have warned you to pass out one of these for every person. But if you have it, you can share it as a couple if you just put your names beside it. Um, but here's the question. Uh, what are you currently doing at Seacoast? Just very briefly, tell us. Uh, I love what I do and plan to keep on doing it. Man, I'm in my niche. And many of you are there. So keep doing what you're doing if you're right where Jesus wants you. But if you're saying, you know, I, I don't want to just do that. I want to do something else or I want to do more. Then I ask you several questions. And the first one is this. I want to serve, 
but I need some help discovering my best fit. And it's okay to say that. Don't sign up for anything except one of those two boxes. I'd like to attend a class called Discovering My Kingdom Calling. Or I'd like to meet even one-on-one with a coach to help me find my best fit. Because we are here to serve you and help you move into meaningful ministry in light of how God has wired you. That's our number one goal as a, as a staff team, is to help you find your ministry, not for you to help us do ours. Did you hear the difference in that? And if we've communicated to you that we want you to help us do our ministry, I want to apologize to you right now and ask you to forgive us. Because that should never be our message. At the top of the page it says, the bottom line is this form is designed to help you join a team. Because I don't want to recruit you to do a job without saying we're going to put you in a team environment where we will encourage and help you or train you and and nurture you, okay? Because we don't need you off on your own, burning out trying to do a job without any support. And if we've done that, let me say, I am sorry. And I know at times we have. Every church has. So we want to know, how can we help you? And then we want to just ask, what's your main passion or interest? And just pick a type of ministry. Maybe you don't know what you want to do yet, but you want to get involved with our life groups or our discipleship or our worship and children and outreach. You can just check one of those boxes. And if you have a little time now, even my dream for serving Jesus would be to someday, and you can write in that box, man, I'd love someday to do this, but I'm not ready yet. So this is just the big picture. If you're looking this morning for a specific way, okay, Dale, help me just get started. I, you know, I've got an hour a month, I've got two hours a month, I've got an hour a week, whatever. On the back of this sheet, there's, there's a, a list of most of the ways you can serve at Seacoast. So look at your area of passion first, and then look at what's under that, and if God prompts you so today, I want you to check the box, which simply means I want to talk with somebody about serving in that area. We're not signing you up for a year. We're just asking you, where are you sensing that the Spirit of God wants you to serve? So we're going to give you a few minutes, and then we'll close with a song or two. So take this time now and prayerfully, don't sing, read over this sheet and pull out a pen. And I want to challenge you to write. If you really feel you need to take this home and pray about it and study it this week, you can do that too and bring it back next week. But I love you enough this morning to ask you that big question. Do you love me? And then if you think the answer is yes, then God forbid that you leave that sheet blank. Now, if you have ministry outside of Seacoast, that's wonderful too. We're not, we're not discounting that. That's, that's another sermon. But in this case, Jesus says, feed my sheep. Let me pray. Father God, as we sit and reflect prayerfully on this sheet, um, I pray that you would move in the hearts of your, of your disciples. I pray that the challenge that you gave to Peter would become the challenge that you give to us. So move us, Father, out of being fans of Jesus to being followers who say, yes, Lord, I love you. And yes, Lord, I will follow you where you lead me. So we ask that the Spirit of God would lead each of us to get into the game today. In Christ's name, amen.